Good long day. Oh, I'm... Hello, hello, testing. That's better, isn't it? I am working on a railroad just to pass the top. Oh, wait. Got to warm it up here. Da, 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 da. Hello, test. Hello out there. Let's play radio. Okay? I'll pretend I'm on the radio and you'll pretend you're listening, all right? Chasing rainbows high up into the sky. Hello, test, test, test. Hello, test, hello, test. I'm always blowing bubbles. Hello, hello there. Very good. Very good. Uh, oh, for those of you who uh, were sad because you had to miss the Sheboygan Bratwurst Festival here a couple of weeks ago, which we talked about, uh, I have a follow-up on it. We like to follow up these things. Here is a picture and a note, a news note, from the Milwaukee Journal. And it is the aftermath of the Bratwurst Day, which we talked about, one of the greater folk festivals here in New York, or rather in the United States. Uh, it says it had to be the most successful, and there's a picture. It shows a lot of people laying on the sidewalk. <laughs> They're all conked out on the sidewalk, flat out. It said it had to be the most successful Bratwurst Day in history. As people consumed so much bratwurst that they set up sleeping quarters on the sidewalks. Seven tons of bratwurst disappeared in more than 100,000 persons as they invaded Sheboygan Saturday for the 13th annual Bratwurst Day. And I just thought you ought to know that the Bratwurst Festival went off very well this year. The uh, Peanut Butter Festival, by the way, which they're holding in Appleton, Wisconsin, in two weeks for you peanut butter fans, peanut butter and jelly fans. I imagine will be equally successful. Uh, here's a little note here. Again, we've got to square away all the little loose ends here of life. Wait, hold on a minute. Just warming this Jewish harp up there. I'll turn down the game a little bit there. Hello, hello. Let's see. Would you like uh, green sleeves? Would you care to hear that? Not so good, but that's all right. So, hello, hello. Cheap use harp. All right. Um, uh, we have here another note, uh, speaking of uh, squaring away. It's, do you know that uh, this is the first time I think I've ever seen an ad in the Times for a uh, used tombstone is now available. And uh, right under it, I, I don't know whether it's just one of those little uh, mistakes that often happen in the papers, you know, those little juxtaposition of values would sometimes make a better statement than if you tried to do it. Right under an ad for used tombstones is an ad that says World's Fair tickets wanted. Any quantity, state price, and quantity available if you've got any used. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. It's pretty hard to, to know where reality stops and the big time begins these days. For example, I have a note here for those of you who are interested in uh, showbiz uber alles. 
which is beginning to look quite apparently, obviously, that showbiz will be taking over the whole world eventually. Do you know that Arthur Treacher is now opening up a butler service? It says that Arthur Treacher was, uh, has been for years, he is the epitome of perfect service. Arthur Treacher playing those butlers. If I remember Arthur Treacher as a butler in the movies, he was always a pretty bad butler. He was always getting in arguments with uh, with Roland Young, wasn't that his name? And, uh, he didn't seem to do much butling. He made a lot of funny remarks, but I don't know how he was with martinis. But nevertheless, Arthur Treacher is starting a butling thing here, and uh, that that means that, of course, that uh, the modern man in today, the 20th century movie world that we all live in, believes that Arthur Treacher must be a good butler because he has so many roles where he plays butler. And I suspect that if he were around today, uh, uh, maybe uh, Humphrey Bogart would be hired by the mafia to give him a few tips on, you know, mafiaing or whatever it is that Bogart, hitting guys or yelling or... Uh, <laughs> and, and Eugene Pallette, of course, would be in tremendous demand among various uh, executives because he's such a fantastic executive in the movies. Uh, what was that other guy? Edward Arnold was always playing executives. I wonder how he could have done running, say, the International Tack and Finkbinder Corporation of, uh, of uh, Findlay, Ohio. It's a very good outfit, by the way. I put a couple of dollars in stock in that outfit. That stock is selling for a tenth of a cent, and I'm hanging on. Well, there's going to be a day when Finkbinders are coming back. Hold on there. <laughs> all right, now, are you all set for, uh, for the unbelievable note of the time? Uh, for those of you who have the New York Times uh, of uh, this past week, I would suggest that you pick up the New York Times. I believe it is the magazine section. There is one of the eeriest pictures I have ever seen in my whole born days. And uh, it's not only eerie, but, but, the, but the ramification of sickness is so rampant that you can't believe it. I mean, you, look, you think you're being put on. I would suggest that you look on page 130 in the last week's issue of the New York Times Magazine. Are you all there? And can you tell me, one of you guys, I would like to have one of our more astute social critics out there. Where's my Jewish harper? Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Fooling around here. This thing is not working again. Hello. 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 Well, all right. Hello. 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 Well, gave up entirely now. Hello. Well, I'll just plug it in here. Hello, hello, hello. Just, oh, my, my, there, you have to plug this in here for crying out loud. Leave it to Lee. <laughs> Where the heck did you put this thing here? <laughs> you didn't even have it plugged in. What kind of greasy kid stuff are you doing here? Now, I, I, I would like to hear, getting back to the subject here, I would like to hear if any of you, <laughs> did you take a look at that, Larry? Come here and look at that. Did you ever see anything more eerie than that? Now he's looking at it and knows what I'm talking about. That picture on page 130 of the New York Times magazine section is is absolutely true. I took one look at it and I didn't know what I was looking at. Uh, uh, for one thing, the the little guy on the right, is he a midget? Or is is that a chimpanzee in disguise? Or, or what is that? I mean, and, and uh, it, there, there's all kinds of ramifications. I hate to even think about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I would like to know if anybody there uh, sitting out there in the darkness ran across that Sunday looking, you know, going through the New York Times on his way to the crossword puzzle and hit this full tilt 
and got it right in the left eye and could not believe it and thought he was being put on. <laughs> you see it? Come here, Larry. Come here, pick it up. And, and Lee, t- take this into Larry so he can see it better, huh? Then he can appreciate, fully savor the, the grand guignol quality of this. There's a certain Hieronymus Bosch quality to that ad that transcends belief. Take it away there, okay? Life among our feathered friends or horror is beginning to creep into everyday existence. You know, speaking of horror, sometimes, sometimes what actually happens, in fact, I'd say most of the time, what actually happens far transcends any, <laughs> anything that you can... <laughs> you see what I'm saying, Larry? <laughs> He's looking at that. So all of you, this is your homework for today, all of you you uh, human, humanity fans out there. <laughs> now look carefully and see what that kid's doing. He's belting the other kid on the back of the head, if you'll notice, with a hammer. And look at the look on his face. <laughs> That's going to sell a lot of sweaters, I got to say. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry that if you don't have a copy of that, you're probably left out in the cold and you wonder what this is all about. But from the same issue of the New York Times magazine, and you know, they're constantly complaining about uh, about Playboy and Hugh Hefner. This is what greeted me in the center. This is the center fold-out from the New York Times. <laughs> Did you see that? It's a center fold-out. I'll tell you, it's, it's right out of Playboy, and I wonder whether or not anybody... Uh, the little old ladies who were always saying, I wouldn't allow Playboy in my house, quietly looked at this in the Times magazine section and didn't even know they were looking at Playboy uh, all the way, you know. You know, I, I, sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm uh, curious. There you are, Eddie. How about that? meeting that little pair? <laughs> A wonderful old Ed Zajac comes in from the wilds of New Jersey and he took one look at the, this pair in, on page 130 there and you should have seen his white owl light up. <laughs> now, uh, here, here's another one. Would you please give me suitable background music? Hold on there for a second. That's it. Very good. Uh, bring, 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 me, bring me on some of the, the dichotomy of existence music, please. Oh, wow. It sure is exciting, isn't it, gang? Trying to keep up with what's happening? Trying to keep up with the existence, the sock, bang, wow, zowie existence that all of us are part of. The dynamic 20th century life sliding downhill ever faster, ever quicker, picking up steam as it goes, leaving behind it a cloud of monster dust. Bring it up there. Oh! Very good. Boy, that's exciting. Now, if I wrote this piece as a, as a chapter in a novel, I would be picketed. And nobody would believe that it could ever happen, and they would say, what a sick, rotten imagination that I have. Now, I'm going to read a piece. Now, immediately I know I'm going to be deluged with, uh, with, uh, with phone calls and letters about this. And before you phone and before you get angry, I am merely reading a piece out of Newsweek magazine. Uh, this is the past issue of Newsweek magazine, and it's taken from one of the sections of Newsweek and is a feature article. Now, uh, <laughs> the reason that I'm, I'm giving this somewhat of a preamble is because of the nature of what it is. And it's so unbelievably funny and so, in a way, sad and self-satirizing that I don't know how anybody could conceivably sat- uh, do this as a satire. Now, listen carefully. This is called Child's Play. Now, I'm reading an article directly from the 
uh, from this magazine, Newsweek. Again, I must repeat. So don't call up and say, Mr. Shepard's being sacrilegious. I'm reading this from a magazine as it's written, and I'm not changing a word. Child's play. And by the way, the magazine is not being sacrilegious. I suspect there's something else at work here. Child's play. Skeptics who regard religion as mere child's play may now have proof in the form of a new Monopoly-style board game called Merit, designed to teach both children and adults, quote, the true Catholic way of life, end of quote. Like the church itself, Merit leaves little to chance. At the outset, all players, preferably mom, dad, and the kids, automatically receive baptismal cards and a stack of merit slips that look very much like play money and are worth up to 100 merits each. Dice, of course, are not used. Instead, each player advances his counter, a plastic statuette of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, or an angel, around the board by correctly answering questions about Roman Catholic faith and practice. Any player who promises to recite the rosary once in the following week gets a free move. Some questions, such as, must you always love your neighbor? Answer, yes, are simple, but participants are warned not to require the exact answer as printed on the question cards. Other questions are rather oddly phrased and require slightly heretical answers. Sample, who is the Immaculate Conception? Answer, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And ecumenically-minded Catholics are sure to lose merits when faced with this question. Are there, is there more than one true church? Answer, no, there's only one true church. During the course of the game, each player is required, is required to help build a church, convent, seminary, charity office, school, or foreign mission center by, quote, raising the prescribed number of merits. The game cannot end until a certain number of church properties are, quote, built. Merit, boasts the manufacturer, is the only game ever to receive ecclesiastical approbation. Uh, and then on the cover, they tell who has approved of it, and then on the cover it says, a cover box blurb from St. Matthew's Gospel takes pains to remind players, quote, unless you turn and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think, I think this is a, a strange travesty on something which is very serious and important in the lives of millions of people. And again, I know that I'm going to get a lot of letters from people claiming that I am being sacrilegious. I, I would like to point out that I did not create this game. And I wonder if the people who created the game are going to get letters like that. I doubt it. Only guys that write about it will. And so uh, it's a curious... Now, if, if, if some writer were to create a situation like this as part of a, a, a novel, as a, uh, as a chapter in the novel, he would be denounced as being a sick comic. He would be... He would... He would be denounced as being sick and having a rotten, warped mind. Now, uh, this this is part of the the curious, I suppose you might call it, uh, fantasy world that we live in today. Uh, I remember reading uh, on the air one night. I had I had a I had a, a great ad for a game, uh, and this game I, I forget the name of it. It was something like uh, uh, called uh, Good Guys, or uh, something like uh, America the Beautiful. And it was a game in which uh, the people were to play the game and they would get little cards. It was like Monopoly. And it was the free world against the communists. And, uh, and you got little cards written by apparently the John Birch Society that told you all about communism and the free world and one thing and another. And they claimed this was the way kids could learn about the world problems today by playing a game. Did any of you learn anything about business by playing Monopoly? 
You know, uh, some of the saddest guys I've ever known were great Monopoly players. <laughs> I mean, uh, who couldn't earn five dollars if they if they were in in the if they were in the jungles and they were selling ice water. Uh, and yet, yet this concept of learning things by games has always uh, dogged people. It's always bugged people. And the idea that you can learn something by playing a game about it uh, has always been a pl uh, one of those little conceits. You know, speaking of the of sick things of our time, I I was listening the other night to my radio, out of town station. And, uh, oh, they're all excited. I hear this, this fantastic excitement going on. The announcer says, well, uh, Charlie Brown, who's now at the auditorium, will be with us in just a few moments, and he will give us the results of the balloting today, and in just a few moments, we will know who the Miss America is now, at this time, this great Miss America. And I thought, gee, the Miss America thing, wow, you know, all of a sudden. And the next thing I know, you could hear this crowd. <laughs> It's a great big crowd, see, it's an auditorium. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Charlie Brown. Speaking to you from the auditorium where Miss America has just been crowned. And I'm listening to this remote, big cheering going on and yelling and hollering. And it turns out that they have elected uh, in this, uh, this little uh, debauch of a peculiar kind of neurotic hang-up, they had elected an eight-year-old Miss America. Did you hear about that? Or was it Miss America? I'm not so sure. Was it Miss Universe? Yeah, little Miss Universe. Here she is. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, wow, wow. What kind of, what kind of hang-ups is, is, uh, is this exemplifying now? And I was thinking, uh, you know, uh, have you ever watched, have you ever watched this, uh, this slowly encroaching uh, worship of kids? Uh, it's, it's becoming, it's becoming a mania. As a matter of fact, I, yes, dear, I know. It's becoming so much of a mania that one of the biggest shows that one of the networks is about to put on the air again is the, is the coast to coast broadcast of the Little League World Series. And, uh, <laughs> oh wow, talk about hangups. This is WORAM and FM New York. And, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, eventually, of course, uh, I suppose, uh, it, it, it's got to come. Eventually, I suspect that anybody over 25 will be put in deep freeze in one way or another. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's got to come. It has to, ultimately, of one kind or another. Of one way or another, it will... Uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of uh, these things which cause uh, great uh, ripples in families, uh, the, the, the emergence of the child as a not only a potent force but as the ultimate the supreme court of the potent forces a kid wrote me a letter the other night and i, I read this letter and he says you know shepherd he says ever since i've been uh, hearing you and i've been becoming more and more conscious of the fantastic power that teenagers have in the family so i've been testing myself and he says i <laughs> And he says, I find that my old man considers me the end, the end expert on everything just because I'm a kid. And he says, apparently he thinks that I, I, I really know everything about everything because he too has been reading about how all teenagers are very alert and sharp and dynamic and, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to fall behind the ties by not listening to him. He says, so the other day we're sitting in the car and we're riding along and I say to my old man, uh, why don't you buy Whoopi Supreme? And the old man's been buying, uh, let's say, uh, Philip 66 all of his life, see. And he's buying, why don't you buy Whoopi Supreme just once then? Now, that's the car with get up and go. It's the car that puts the pizzazz in the old cylinders. As a matter of fact, it's the car that worries about you. And the, the old man says, yeah, gee. And we drove in. He says, we bought 10 gallons of this gas that knocked all the way home. 
But the old man, <laughs> the old man was happy because somehow he felt he was he was part of the new world, the brave the brave new world of the teenagers, where of course kids really understand these things. And he says, ever since that time, I've been testing him, and I've been testing the whole family along that line. He says, I have now become dictator of our house. And uh, so I will come home, and he says, I take a look at the meatloaf, and I say, Oh, come on, meatloaf, you're not. Are you serious, Mom? I mean, meatloaf went out, believe me, meatloaf went out of style with Benny Goodman. And uh, my mother immediately gets all worried, and he says, And the next thing you know, we're all out having a frozen TV dinner, which I assure her is. <laughs> and the kids, you know, the kids, he's testing himself, and he's running, he's running the hoops at the house. Well, I, I remember the time, you know, I'm often threatened to tell this story. Speaking of, uh, did I give the station break here? Oh, I did? How about hitting the money button first, and then I'll go on with this fiasco here. We're here at the ballpark, sitting right next to the box seat that contains the 2,500-year-old brewmaster. They're leaning into my box. Yes. Well, sir, uh, I want to ask you, uh, before the next inning starts... um, are you enjoying yourself out here today? I certainly am. I love a good ball game. I've always been a devotee of sports. Sir, I noticed that you've got something in your right hand. Ah, uh, it's a cool brew. It's a cool brew, and it's, of course, something else that starts with B. It's... Right. It's Bingelschlacker. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like beer, except a little taste. You're pulling my leg now. Well, uh, don't stick it in my box. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, sir, what do you really have in your hand? A, a, a glass of Valentine. Yeah. It's You're a happy bit... now, right? If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Valentine beer. There's more spirit to it. Valentine beer. <laughs> you know, I'm probably the only guy in the Western world that does not find those commercial side-splittingly funny. Wait a minute here. Now, I better check that page. Somebody just called in here. I don't know what happened to it. They, they, you, they've got it in there, Lee. I don't have it. It's page 130. I'm sorry. If your New York Times magazine does not go past 80, you've been had. And uh, <laughs> the one I have goes well past 130. <laughs> it's funny. She's also looking at a 1937 New York Times magazine. Uh, while we're on this... <laughs> You know, uh, I, I, you find out your power, you know, when you're a kid. I think, I think there's two things at, at work. I think on the one hand, there is the vague uh, fear that everybody has about encroaching age or encroaching uh, uh, out of itness. Uh, the vague feeling that, that he doesn't count. You know, one of the weirdest sights I've ever seen when you talk about the, the, the peculiar solidarity of the teenage world is the, uh, the scene that I saw in Manly, Australia. Uh, you know, uh, everybody, everybody, every time I mention Australia, you know, I got a letter from a, from a person, a woman, and she said, uh, in effect, she said, Dear Mr. Shepherd, I am highly disappointed at you that you would find such a gauche, ridiculous country as Australia interesting. I wouldn't go near it. I find great spiritual and intellectual solace in my yearly visit to Budapest, Paris, and Rome, and I'm sure that you would find the same. Well, I'm sorry when, when people are living so far out of it and so far behind the times that they don't recognize that much of the intellectual ferment in this world has slipped out of the hands of the Western peoples and has gone east in one way or another. And you find, you find a peculiar kind of ferment and excitement just standing on the main street in a place like Australia's Sydney. Uh, you don't know which way it's going to jump. 
there is a is a strange fluid excitement in the air as though the the society is not only unformed but is about to jump in almost any unpredictable direction it's it's, it's wildly exciting just to be there there's something in the air well about two o'clock in the morning I I, uh, I was in a place in this hotel in, in Manly, Australia. You know, uh, the, the, the teenage cultures, you know, we think our teenage culture is advanced. In other words, we think that the kids are taking over in this country. Let me tell you, it's greasy kid stuff compared to the other countries where the teenager has actually taken over. I mean, genuinely taken over. Uh, for example... I don't have to tell you about that, about England and, and the, their teenager explosion. Now, I don't mean necessarily taken over in the buying sense. We've had that for years. But I'm taking, I mean taken over in other subtle areas that, uh, to, that to Americans would be completely, uh, would be completely, uh, almost uh, non-understandable. Now, here's a typical example of it. Now, I, I broadcast from uh, the limelight down in the village. Any of you who have uh, ever been down there, you know that they have, like most places, uh, they have very strict rules regarding teenagers. In fact, uh, they, they won't allow teenagers in when we're doing the show unless they're accompanied by their, their, their parents and adults and one thing and another. Because it's all part of our society. Uh, the teenager doesn't drink. Uh, the teenager is really not an adult, so he doesn't do various things that adults do as a matter of course. And I don't know whether this is right or wrong. I'm merely pointing out this is the way our society is. And uh, it's uh, decreasingly so, but nevertheless, that's really the way it is. Well, in Australia, uh, ordinarily people think of Australia as a kind of a uh, Victorian sort of society. I've heard that. And this is part of that peculiar paradox, too. In some ways it is. Did I tell you about standing in line going through a uh, going through the customs line in Australia? <laughs> I never had anything like this happen to me before. I'm, I'm standing in line there and there's a guy ahead of me and he looks like an insurance man, you know. He's got little rimless glasses, and he's standing there, and he's, he's come over from America. He's some kind of a businessman. And they're going through our bags, the uh, Australian consulate or whatever it is there, the customs officials. And they're just, you know, they've got uniforms on and hats, just like all uh, customs officials everywhere do. And, and he's going through the bag. And the guy's right ahead of me, you see. And he's going through the bank office. And says, oh, he says, oh, I'm sorry, Governor. I have to take this on side. He says, I'm sorry, Governor. I can't let this one go through. And the guy says, "What? What? What? What do you mean? Can't? What if you?" He says, well, I, "I just bought that in the in in the in the in the plane station." He said, "I bought this in 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 the in you know, and I just bought it to read. I just bought it. What? what why can't I have it?" He said, "I'm sorry, it's on the list. I'm sorry, I can't take it." Well, he had taken a copy of Mary McCarthy's The Group, and uh, it was confiscated because it was it was not an official book. It was not officially allowed to be brought in the country. For, Vic, uh, for the Victorian type Australians to read. Now, of all books, the, the, the group. Now, I, I can see it's not a very good book, but, <laughs> you know, I can't see it the, being stopped at the, at the border just like that. I mean, sure, you know. So, so uh, he, he took this and I thought, oh, wow, what a Victorian country I'm coming into. I figured. Well, about a night and a half later, I'm in this hotel in this little town, a suburb of Sydney, and I, I go into the bar, and they had a bar down there. This is a, this is a uh, not even a bar; it's a big room. It's almost like a almost like a, a a big restaurant. You know how they used to have restaurants and hotels? It's as though you had this restaurant, and you cleared out all the tables. You just cleared the whole thing out, and you put instead you put wooden benches around. You know, like picnic benches 
with wooden benches on each side. You just laid them down at random all over this place. And then you packed 18,000 people in there, absolutely to the, to the brim, just right to the gunnels. You packed these people in. And then you took the other end of the room, you know, where the, where the bandstand used to be, and you just made one giant bar out of it. You never saw anything like it. I mean, I have never... I've seen drinking in my time, but I never saw anything in my, in my life like this. They had waitresses. They couldn't... The beer was flowing so fast, Larry, that they couldn't even... They didn't have spigots, you know. They had big hoses. And these chicks had big hoses with squirters on the end. And a guy would come in from the kitchen with, with 17,000 glasses, and they would just go... They're filling the glasses from these squirt guns. They, they, they couldn't possibly have done it so fast, you know, with the, with, the, with the spigots and all that. So they would fill a thousand glasses up. They'd just go, and the waiter would be waiting, see, and he would carry it away on the top of his head. And he would go off into the crowd bearing 4,000 glasses of beer, great big schooners of beer. And these chicks are just filling beer up steadily for the three hours I stood in there and watched. And they did not stop once. They're squirting the beer, and, and right next to them, is a guy, <laughs> yeah, and right next to him is a guy who is making mixed drinks and pouring scotch into glasses over rocks as fast as he can do it. I don't mean he's waiting for orders. He is just pouring. <laughs> he's making the drinks just as fast as he can make them because the guy's taking them away that fast. And they had 38, maybe 40 waiters just running constantly taking this stuff out. And what do you think this was? This was a teenage canteen. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was a teenage canteen, and all these <laughs> and I have never seen anything quite like it anywhere here in America. I've seen all kinds of swing and stuff, but holy smokes! And and uh, these kids were packed in this joint. They were they were cheek by jowl. Uh, they were they were they were as as tightly as they could be packed in there, and they were laying it down. You never saw anything like the, the you you never saw any guzzling in your life like this that was going on. They were knocking this stuff down. And, and yelling and hollering, and right in the middle of this whole scene, they had a, a floor that was that was sort of marked out. It was about the size of, oh, I'd say, oh, about the size of the average uh, village pad, which was to say it's about seven feet square, and that's the floor, see. And, and these people would get up, and, and I was with a photographer. This this photographer was a friend of mine. We uh, we traveled together on this trip, and he he all over the world, and he's photographed the the world, you know. And and he he had photographed scenes of debauchery, the likes of which you've never seen in your life. And he had a collection of them with him. Uh, he he's a, he's he's no no not that kind of stuff. No, not stag pictures, not that. He is fascinated with the decadence of the world as it's beginning to, to be manifested in, in little things like, you know, the things that are beginning to happen all over, the wild scenes. And he said he had never seen anything like this. And I must agree with him. That here's this little floor. It's about the size, about eight or nine feet square, this tiny floor. Well, up on the stage, eight guys would start to play rock and roll. Uh, they would start to roar this stuff out. And deafening, absolutely, unbelievably deafening, all, all done live. And all these chicks would get together in one mop, almost all girls. These chicks would get together in this, it was like a writhing mass. Have you ever, have you ever gone fishing and, and you, you, you have a can of worms? And you know, down at the bottom of the can, there's always a great big ball of worms all tangled up together like, a, like about the size of a tennis ball. Have you ever seen that, Larry? Well, that was the way this scene was. It was like a like a mop of human worms. All these chicks, why? Oh boy, oh boy! Talk about high octane. 
You never saw anything like it in your life. And they're beating the drum. And they're undulating. It was like when you got back a foot and a half, you could not see individual people at all. It was like one mass of totally unleashed libidinous passion. I mean, the real thing. Eyes glazed, and you could see, and they'd rise to a frenzy, and once in a while, one would go, ah! and they'd drag her out to the table and pour beer in her, you know, and they'd throw her back into the fray. Well, <laughs> we're watching this scene, and here standing next to me is this wonderful avuncular proprietor. This was a family hotel. And he's a wonderful, uh, he, he really, he looked like all the grandpa Charlies you've ever known in your life. He looked like all the elderly uncles. He looked like Cuddle Seacall. You know, that kind of, very, we wish having little funds here, you know, for the young people. To, well, he, he's standing there in the middle of this fantastic scene, and these kids are swilling it down. And out in front of this joint, you can hear guys hollering, <laughs> You hear seven motorcycles hit head on. And, and then you'll hear, a Ferrari runs through all the wreckage. And then once in a while, you'd and you'd hear the sound of the ambulance, and then, away it goes. Well, we're standing in the middle of the scene of carnage like you've never seen in your life. And it's going, oh, I'll tell you it's going. And, and it, 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 it makes anything that we've got going in this country, like, honestly, you feel like everything that we've got was staged by the Bobsy twins uh, compared to this. And I'm standing there with him, and he's got this avuncular look on his face, and he says, he says well, I'll, I'll tell you, Mr. Shepard, he said, I'll tell you, the way we look at it is this way. Uh, we, we feel it's better to have the young tots off the streets. <laughs> I'm thinking off the streets and on the floor at a bar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow the streets looked awfully innocent. <laughs> and this stuff was flowing. And I said to him, I said, well, well, how many beers do you sell a night? And he says, oh, well, we sometimes will do maybe two or three thousand beers on a night like this. But this is not a very good night. And I said, well, how many do you fit in this place? And he said, oh, well, we maybe sometimes get as high as sometimes maybe three or four hundred. And I'm thinking, wow, what an average of uh, the number of beers that these kids are, are belting down and, and mixed drinks, one thing, another. And, and I, 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 again, I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not making any value judgment on this, but this is part of that strange kind of paradoxical view of life that you get when you look at both ends of the scale in a country. On the one end, on the one end you, you'll find little old ladies writing angry letters about Playboy, and on the other end, uh, they will go down to Radio City and watch the perpetual virgin, Doris Day, be chased through endless bedrooms by another one, Rock Hudson. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I wonder which is the most libidinous, that's all. <laughs> and where you draw the line and how you make your decisions. These, these, are, the, these are the things that I've often wondered about. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying, right? It's just six and one half dozen the other, you know. You pick your game and you play it, that's all. Uh, but uh, when, when you go to a country like Australia, you see these, you see it because you're new there. And to, to, to tell an Australian this, he would, he would not understand it. In fact, I know that by tomorrow night I will get seven letters from Australians saying, you're out of your mind, Shepard. I'm an Australian and I, I'm sorry, I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm not <laughs> drawing any more value judgments than that. Uh, these things, these things are constantly the things which I suppose lead people to 
to get into that quandary that many young people are in today. And that is that the life they see does not jibe with the life their old man tells them is out there. And they don't quite know how to make the, the, the uh, you know, make that transition between the reality and the dream. What is and what seems to be. Uh, I, I don't know what a kid does when, when uh, his old man is telling him that he's got to be honest and he's gotta, he's, he can't cheat. When all the while he, he can hear the old man out in the kitchen arguing with the wife and, and his accountant and they're working on next year's income tax. And, you know, and, and he can hear, he can hear this, this steady uproar of big time cheating going on. And, uh, I mean, how does he, how does he make one match the other? I don't know. Uh, I guess it's always been this way, but people used to take, I, I, I submit for what it's worth, I think, anyway, I think people used to just accept these, these, uh, paradoxes in life and never question them. Uh, I, I think that, that uh, had I been a tourist of, say, 15 years ago, I would have not said much about the fact that a book was taken uh, coming in through the customs officials, and 10 minutes later I'm watching this wild scene of the kids drinking, and I would have kept them separate. I would never have related the two. Never said, well, how can they do this and then do that? Which, uh, which is part of the, uh, the paradox and the contradiction that all of us are living in. It's constantly that. I, 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 you know, I'm always watching guys who write about the basic uh, inhumanity of war. I remember uh, the other day uh, reading uh, a man who is one of the great apostles of peace. Uh, he always talking about love between human beings and, and we should uh, fight against violence. And at the same time, this guy has taken the following heavyweight fighters around and sitting in the camp and waiting for the blood to flow. And when it doesn't flow, he's very angry when, when the fight doesn't result in teeth in the first three or four rows, a couple of ears up on the balcony, you know. And, and so I wonder where that strange paradox, uh, where, where, you make them, where you make them meet. Uh, so many of my friends who are peace lovers also love bullfights. And I, and I, I suggest that they're one of the, you know, war, uh, bloodletting, uh, uh, that ferocious carnivore that's in all of us is part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, you, you can't separate the bullfight from uh, perhaps Vietnam. I don't know. But it, uh, there's so many of these things which, which seem to be uh, contradictions, but what, uh, that are really, in a sense, uh, the other side of the coin. I remember when I was a kid talking about that. Uh, have you ever seen a fight in your family? Uh, a real fight. Now, I don't mean a, I don't mean a, a, a mother arguing with the father type fight. I mean a fist fight. <laughs> All of a sudden, these guys are belting each other and yelling, hitting each other with beer bottles, and they're rolling around on the ground. <laughs> I'm a kid, see, and we went to this big picnic, and, uh, and it was out on the outside of town uh, in the forest preserve, and that's where everybody had picnics. And uh, we went out to this picnic, and they were all sitting around. They had beer, and they, they all had... Uh, they all had uh, big tubs full of hot dogs and all the, all the potato salad and all that junk. Everyone's sitting around. And uh, I had this Uncle Charles. And uh, Uncle Charles is sitting there, and he's sitting at the bench, and all of a sudden he's talking to the next family. The next family, you know, how they pack these people into these forest preserves, everybody having a picnic within eight feet of each other, you know, and, and yelling back and forth, and you wind up with somebody else's piccalilli, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's that kind of scene. And so Uncle Charles started to holler at somebody at the next table. He was about 20 feet away, and he's, ah, so's your old man. And you hear this other guy, what do you mean, what do you think you are? Well, my Uncle Carl then, uh, he was three sheets to the wind too, 
My Uncle Carl then says to my Uncle Charles, he says, Oh, come on, let him go, Charles, for crying out loud, you'd kill the little runt. Well, with that, Uncle Charles turns to Uncle Carl and says, What are you trying to argue? What are you, what are you trying to do? Tell me what to do? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? And Uncle Carl says, Oh, you don't have to get on a muscle, you big lunk. And Uncle Charles, What do you mean a big lunk? And the next thing you know, Uncle Charles hit Uncle Carl in the head with a bowl of potato salad. And 30 seconds later, all the uncles, including Uncle Al and including Uncle Fred, are rolling around under the tables, and the other guy has already gone and went home with all his kids, you know, carrying his hot dogs with him. Well, I'm standing on the outside of this thing, and they're belting each other and yelling, and, and, and of course, I assumed it was the end of the world. Well, suddenly, they all got up, and they started to drink beer again, and they were 50 times happier than they had been before. They loved each other. You know, oh, come on, Carl, you can fix the old eye. I'm sorry. Oh, boy, your belt is in there. <laughs> Holy smokes. Oh, I'm crying out loud. Hey, how about some opening? Some beer, man. Bring some more beer. Well, that was the way life went. And I began to realize guys like fistfights. <laughs> there is a basic desire for them. And, uh, I mean, after all, who among us is not libidinous enough not to throw any, uh, what is it you have to throw, any copies of candy through glass windows? I mean, we all got a libido, Dad, and it's galloping. It's a yard wide. I mean, you know, let's face it. Keep your knees loose, learn to swing, you know?